0: There are several things happening right now nationwide. We are, of course, facing an unprecedented teacher shortage. And as a result, some states are passing legislation that eases restrictions previously limiting who could enter the classroom. At the same time, legislation is also being passed in certain states requiring use of particular curricular or high quality instructional materials, the science of reading being the most recent, widely adopted example of this. But how can these seemingly conflicting facts both be true? Our schools managing a teacher shortage while simultaneously implementing HQIM? On today's episode of Lessons Learned, Better Lessons CEO Matt Kennard speaks with Anna Edwards, Chief Advocacy Officer and co-founder of Whiteboard Advisors, and Jenna Keeney, Better Lessons Senior Vice President of Professional Learning. Tune in as they talk about education policy, HQIM, professional development, And the eventual silver lining.
1: Welcome to Lessons Learned. I am so fortunate uh, to be joined by a familiar face and a new face to the Lesson Learned uh, podcast. Uh, First, we have Anna Edwards, who's the Chief Advocacy Officer for Whiteboard Advisors. I have the benefit of also having known Anna for over 20 years. And she is, we're so lucky to have her here to talk about such an important topic. And we also have Jenna Keeney, our SVP of Solution Design, and uh, one of my favorite people to talk about education with. Uh, And we're really here to dive into an important topic, which is about how do we think about achieving quality classroom instruction in the midst of significant workforce challenges, right? We, I think anyone who has opened up a newspaper or gone on to a, a news website has seen how we are struggling to prepare the next generation of students for work. And really the question becomes, how do we as a society, as a group of educators start thinking about support for great instruction at a time of significant change? And I'm really excited to have these two here to, to chat about it. Um, I'll actually turn it over to you first, Anna, maybe do a quick intro and then um, let us know what are the kind of headline thoughts that you have as you think about this topic?
2: Yeah, thanks Matt. Thanks for inviting me to join um, and to share the stage with Jenna, which is a real pleasure, but um, uh, just a little bit of background. So for the last 19 years, I have led our work at Whiteboard Advisors, engaging with governors, state departments of education, school district leaders, mayor's offices, and influencers that impact policy making and procurement at the state and local level. And um, it's a real honor to get to spend a lot of time out in the field, especially post pandemic, it's like more travel than ever, um, working with the folks on the ground that are trying to um, do exactly what you said, make the educational experience better for students and families and improve the outcomes of those learners. Um, today's been a particularly fun day because I got to spend time this morning with the chief academic officers of the seven largest high poverty school districts in the country. And we were talking about improving math instruction and at the heart of that topic, high quality instructional materials and educator capacity and building educator capacities. So I think the topic for today really brings in so much of the challenges and opportunities that states and districts are working on. And there's kind of, there are different levers, right? At the state level, you have policy levers. At the local level, you have different programs and initiatives that you can launch. And the question is, how can we, as a system, um, come in and, and try to make that process more efficient for the folks that are administering it and um, a better experience and ultimately better outcomes for students? So I'm excited to to dive in with you today.
1: Fantastic. Jenna? No introduction needed for those familiar with the Lessons Learned podcast, but love to hear your your headline thoughts as as you think about this topic.
3: Uh, Yeah, Uh, hi everyone. I'm Jenna, Uh, have met you before in Lessons Learned. Um, I've been at Better Lesson for about 10 years uh, now, but prior to that was a teacher and coach um, in lots of districts around the Boston area. And um, really, as I think about HQIM, I want to build on what Anna was sharing is really thinking about what that means for equity for students when they have access to high quality instructional materials, but just knowing that the access is not enough. Um, And so how are we thinking about supporting teachers with how you implement those resources and how you implement them with integrity so that they are meeting the needs of the students in front of them. Um, And so I think um, one of the things that's top of my mind is as we're thinking about the workforce challenges in education is how we're really thinking about how that access to high quality instructional materials um, meets with that challenge of uh, shortage of teachers and challenge of um, rich teacher retention. Uh, and so those are some of the things that I'm thinking about today.
1: Well, on that topic, I think this is, you know, an interesting place to, to start. Much like the pandemic, it would seem like states are trying to take this on from a top-down approach. Through legislation, through requirements for um, HQIM, which you know has often been, um, we'll say, at odds with the idea of homegrown momentum for school districts that's tailored around the needs of that district and the specific conditions on the ground. Can you talk a little bit, uh, Anna, about what you're seeing in the legislation and do we feel like it's either going too far or not far enough? And how does that match with that energy that you'd hope to see districts being able to grow that's born out of the local community?
2: Yeah, it's such a great question. Um, And I think you almost have to separate the workforce and teacher shortage um, challenges and policy responses from HQIM. Although both um, have both a top-down kind of policy approach that's going on in many places, as well as um, a more district-led um, programmatic approach. You know. I think from a state perspective in terms of teacher shortage, um, states get to set the regulatory environment, including licensure requirements in which um, districts hire teachers. And so that's a place where we're seeing some innovation, right? Um, we're seeing uh, maybe an easing of restrictions for military spouses. Um, entering the teaching force or um, allowing for cross state licensure reciprocity, um, particularly again for military spouses that are a highly mobile population. So, a number of states have put those policies into place. Um, I remember um, you know, during kind of the last economic collapse when the state of New Jersey um, enacted a piece of legislation called Traitors to Teachers. So, you know, like, Oh, uh, oh, eight, oh nine. um it was, we have all of these Wall Street types that don't necessarily have jobs anymore on Wall Street. How can we get them into classrooms teaching STEM courses? And so there's a history of states um, making policies um, maybe more relaxed uh, in order to encourage more teachers coming in. Um, that helps districts because um, it's can, it's hard to find teachers. I was talking to um, some uh, colleagues that lead a state education agency in a southeastern state that were sharing that um, they're hearing of principals going into the Piggly Wiggly. And if they can find a, um, a person at the register with great customer service skills, they'll say, wow, do you want to come teach in kindergarten? And uh, in some ways, having the ability to, to bring in um, caring staff to classrooms easily is important. But wow, there's a whole host of concerns that 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 raises. Um, And I think that that's the other um, part of this conversation, which is if we are creating an environment where we are relaxing the standards for teachers that are coming into the classroom, wow, we better be providing a whole host of supports, including high quality curriculum, um, as well as intensive professional development Um, and other training to make sure that they're actually prepared for a really important and consequential job. And so, so I think on the, on the policy side at the state level, we are seeing some of those states that are relooking at um, whether praxis exams will be required for entering teachers. And, um, and it really is around looking at licensure, encouraging grow your own programs, encouraging apprenticeships. There's a lot of discussion about apprenticeships and and even whether, um, you know, WIOA and other labor funds can be used um, to um, get grow your own programs up and running, but providing some level of state um, policy and funding. And then, you know, I think on the HQIM side, um, which has to go along with thinking about a quality classroom experience, particularly if you're changing the requirements for teachers, you know, that's where, We've even seen in some states that have always been local control, a desire to put together some sort of an approved, um, high-quality list. Um, Some states are moving past core to supplemental as well with a real goal of making sure, to Jenna's point, that there's some sort of consistent quality instructional experience that students are, um, are getting, and teachers, by the way, that might move from district to district, then would also be prepared in instruction in the same materials. Um, there, Most states that are putting these types of policies in place do allow for some sort of district appeal to use another curriculum or to use a, a curriculum that they've developed in-house. And so I think even in states that have um, you know, requirements that state funds be used on an approved list or... Um, a strong encouragement of the use off of a state adoption list. Um, there's sometimes flexibility for districts to also um, use their own materials. And, you know, and that's just a kind of a tension that I think existed well before the moment that we're in now as well.
1: Yes. None of this is new, right? I mean, this isn't the first time we've had to deal with this. You know, Jenna, one of the things that has struck me is this confluence of, I would say, Um, competing trends, teacher shortages, an idea of loosening standards, while also demanding more results for students in a classroom. And I think we all want to have students who have the ability to pursue something they're passionate about, to have a fruitful and productive life post-graduation, and whether that is going to university or going to trade school or going a different path that they feel like they're well-prepared. Can you talk a little bit about how this confluence of trends, which seem to be fighting each other a little bit, is really playing out. And is there is there a, a way through this? Because it feels like a bit of a quagmire. And let's not even begin to talk about learning loss from COVID.
3: Yeah, nice meaty question, Matt. I, I appreciate it. Um I I will say like one of the things I think a lot about is. What are those baseline things that are needed in a classroom for successful um, student achievement? And really thinking about this idea that it's really what's at the core of that instruction, right? Is a teacher, a quality teacher, high quality instructional materials, right? That content and students and the interaction between those things. Um, And so really thinking about like states pushing for these high quality instructional materials means all the things that Anna was saying, right? There's cohesiveness from grade to grade, potentially cohesiveness in that state as students are moving around or teachers are moving around. But it means, right, that teachers are not having to be curriculum designers and assessment designers at the same time that they're really perfecting their craft where they're going into the classroom and they're skillfully teaching and adapting those resources they have based on the students in front of them. And so I think that when we take that, we potentially remove that from teachers, we are enabling more teachers to potentially come into the field that may not have expertise in all those areas. I know when I was a teacher, I was not taught how to build curriculum or how to build assessments, right? And so oftentimes when we are putting teachers in those positions, they are not having the support and the training in order to do those things or to have that support to think about what is that cohesiveness as students progress from grade to grade. As we think about new teachers coming in or uh, relaxing requirements on teachers, I think it's really important to think about the professional learning that is ongoing and sustained in those buildings. And I think it means we need to think about professional development differently. It cannot be this one-time day where everybody is in one space it has to be ongoing it has to be at the pace of that person and it has to be at the level that that person is at so really thinking about the same way we think about students right we think about differentiated instruction and how to meet students where they are and we have whole systems to do that around mtss we really need to think about that same type of support for teachers and so i think a lot around who are teachers that need support with coaching one-to-one coaching who are teachers that potentially can really benefit from asynchronous courses that they can take at their own pace and thinking about those high quality instructional materials it's really thinking about what can that district be building or um, having support to build that enables us to really scale up teachers quickly to be able to feel comfortable implementing high quality instructional materials. That does not mean we will quickly help teachers be skillful teachers. That takes a lot of time, effort and practice. Um, But I think that one of the things that I think a lot about is how do we support all teachers, whether new or existing um, is around what is the most essential thing I'm teaching in this lesson? And how do we really help them backwards plan to that most essential thing? So that way, whether I'm a new teacher, I'm a substitute teacher, I'm a veteran teacher, I'm really clear on what students need to know um, and be able to do at the end of this lesson. Um, And how do we really uh, support people to do that in an ongoing way? And professional development of of course, is one of those key ways that we can support them to do that.
2: Jenna, I'd love to just pick up um, on that point because I think you've hit on a key point of intersection between state policy and district and school implementation. And um, now I was thinking back to your question just about the like blunt state policy instrument, right? And so there are 16 uh, textbook adoption states, right? And then we know that there's this other network of um, IMPD states that through CCSSO are also advancing curriculum approval and review processes Um, But now we're starting to see a lot of districts that have historically been decentralized um, and allowed for site-level decision-making for curriculum and instructional materials also getting on the HQIM bandwagon. Um, So New York City, right, like largest school system in America um, that has historically been divided into local districts. And then even within those local districts, which are the size of many other like medium and large size districts around the country, the individual school buildings were kind of allowed to do what they thought was best for their students for core and supplemental materials and professional development. And sometimes those things would align and be coherent and sometimes they wouldn't. And um, we saw this year, New York City Schools Chancellor, David Banks, um, say we are going to implement HQIM District wide for elementary ELA and consistently across ninth grade algebra. And it it was one of those announcements that everybody was like, oh yeah, science of reading, this makes sense. But it it was really historic um, for the district. And I think a signal that, um, you know, given the massive transitions that we're seeing and influx of new teachers, if you don't have some consistency in the materials that are being used and in the professional learning that's being um, deployed to help using them and with just, you know, kind of pedagogical upskilling in general, then like the system, it it can't function, right? There's no way to judge apples to apples and to know what's working and what's not. You know, we've seen school districts in Philadelphia, um, LA, a lot of the large Florida districts have already been doing HQIM for a long period of time. So, um, so I really think it's it'll be interesting to see how that trend continues. Houston and some of the large, historically like decentralized districts that have been um, moving towards this idea of streamlining curriculum and professional learning. Um, and so so again, just to like come back to Jenna's point, it's like it's coming top down, and there have always been these sixteen adoption seats. But I think now we're seeing districts as well um, work to provide that support. And we're not seeing much protest from principals or in the states that are doing it from district leaders, because guess what? There also isn't the capacity in central offices. Mm -hmm. And so I think that in some places, in many places, it's like, oh, thank you. Like, that's one thing that our team doesn't have to think through either at the building level or at the district level, if the state is providing some guidance, because then you have some some support. If you can, you can blame the the state. You can blame the district if it's not working. But at least that was one decision that you didn't have to make with your own um, uh, staff that's having uh, capacity challenges. So it's it is a really interesting moment um, from that perspective.
1: You know, we've been having this conversation. I think even here on the Lessons Learned podcast, we talked about the new, you know, 42 states introduced legislation around science of reading, right? We've seen multiple states introducing legislation around um, teaching requirements and how to get more folks into the classroom while simultaneously pushing on HQIM. You know, one of the things, and I think you brought it up, Anna, and I'll turn to you on this one, Jenna, is when we think about building principles and we think about school level control and we think about top-down decision-making, The implementation of HQIM is not easy. I think we can all say, you know, full stop. uh, It has greater demands on teachers, instructional coaches and leaders, principals who are the instructional leaders of their buildings, right? And like success will go as that principal goes in that building. How can we think about making some of this top-down work more sensitized or what additional supports need to be? accompanying this type of legislation to make it more effective at the level of a school building, at a principal, at an instructional coach, at a classroom educator level, because it looks great in the headlines, but if it's not implementable or it doesn't come with the right surrounding pieces, we know it is going to struggle to be effective, particularly in the world of HQIM.
3: I think the most essential thing a district can do is really um, engage in some type of strategic planning that talks about the life cycle of the implementation of that curriculum. So what, what are our outcomes or goals at the end of year one? What are the outcomes of goals at the end of year two? What does it look like when we're moving towards sustained implementation in year three? also really clearly identifying that we're going to always have to be launching new teachers into this curriculum. And so how do we have these different cohorts in the same spaces? I think if you do some type of strategic planning that really outlines what that implementation looks like, you're able to better provide the supports and structures that enable that to happen. So I think in the curriculum of old, um, that was scripted and not necessarily meant to be implemented with integrity, you had really a life cycle of one year, right? Like we're going to get this curriculum, someone's going to come in one day, they're going to teach us how to implement it, then teachers are going to go off and do it, and then we're going to go in and assess whether or not that's happening. I think one of the really wonderful and beautiful changes with HQIM is it's really thinking about What does the implementation of these high quality instructional materials look like in your buildings, with your students, with your leadership, and really making sure that those district leaders have an opportunity to say, What are the things about this curriculum that really matter to us, um, that are really important to our students and meeting their needs? And what are the things about this curriculum that we are not gonna prioritize in year one? We may prioritize in year two, or we may prioritize in year three. And I think if you're not having those really honest conversations at the district level and then differentiating them by the school level, you're really gonna run into some challenges around implementation for all the things we're talking about, workforce challenges, substitute teachers, as well as just student achievement data, right? If we're not really clear around what it is we expect students to be able to do at the end of each of these years, that becomes an ongoing challenge. So I really think some type of strategic planning that's really mapping out your implementation um, is really key and vital.
1: You know, Anna, if we think about workforce challenges, they can be hyper-local, hyper-regional, state-based. How, given what you and Jenna have talked about I'd be interested to hear how you would be advising legislatures to think about structuring ongoing legislation to maybe be more supportive in the veins that you all have talked about. What are the pieces that are missing? What are the ways that they can make the journey to HQIM to meet their local or state-based workforce challenges a little more feasible, a little easier to walk down that road for those district administrators and principals and teachers who are being asked to actually complete the trick?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, number one and like probably number one through 10 is more funding, right? I mean, it just takes resources to be able to do HQIM implementation well. And that includes, Know, all of the supports that Jenna just walked through. And so to the extent that state leaders can understand that number one, instructional shifts and high quality curriculum are going to cost money and investing in that is really important. Um, there could be some ways to use incentive funding. Um, the state of Ohio, for example, put what's going to be probably about $170 million into their science of reading effort, right? That is, a lot, um, but it doesn't cover it all. But certainly it goes a long way towards incentivizing districts to use evidence-based literacy instruction. Um, So yeah, so number one is funding, Like number two is probably funding and number three is funding. Um, But I think it's also putting in place policies that take the time horizon that Jenna walked through into consideration. So it's not like you're gonna flip a switch in year one, all of a sudden the scores are gonna go you know, straight to the top right quadrant and we're going to all pat our backs because we invested in HQIM and and now everything looks great. Um, So I think policymakers really need to take um, the long view. Uh, We can't wait too long and we've got to start now. And and I don't think anyone's saying that, but it does take time to see the results of HQIM implementation. And I think often in our world, um, we want to see results fast. And when we don't see those in one assessment cycle. You know, it's like, oh man, well, we tried like that's my biggest fear, right? Like we tried that science of reading thing in our state, it clearly didn't work. And it's like, well, that was, you know, two years. And it turns out you have to undo a decade of instructional practice that wasn't evidence based. And that just takes time. So I think in in working with policymakers, putting more resources and funding in, thinking about creative incentives. Um, to encourage adoption and really drive teacher excitement you know i've seen the level of um, uh, engagement that teachers have had and like donors choose funding across the state and the joy it's brought and so what if you were to combine that type of local incentivizing um, and encouragement to teachers to use hqim in their classroom maybe allow them some opportunity and space to personalize and bring joy in if they if the the district or state are pushing in a curriculum top down. I think we just need to get a little bit more creative and flexible from that perspective. So I think incentives would also be an interesting one to look at. And then you know, and then I think the the PD piece just can't talk about it enough. Um, I look at the way we um, at Whiteboard are thinking about the Gen Z workforce and thinking about how we respond to the unique work styles and technology preferences um, of the next generation of employees. And the education system has got to be thinking about that as well. Um, you know, I've heard of some districts looking at uh, like hybrid schedule where teachers teach maybe four days in person and then have a hybrid day or even I think there's one district in Utah or a few that um, the state chief there, Sid Dixon, said are doing a a hybrid schedule where it's three days in person and two days flexible because guess what? Post-pandemic, a lot of uh, teachers saw their friends getting to work in yoga pants all day and they're like, wait, I want to have a couple days also, you know, not having to go in in person. And so I think that all of those systems and, and models and structures need to be taken into consideration by policymakers with flexibility to do those sorts of things at the local level to meet the local demands and and unique, maybe even generational demands for how teachers train and then how they um, provide instruction. So I'm I'm hoping that maybe more resources, more innovation, more flexibility um, could help to um, really make this work possible for districts and school leaders.
1: You know, we've talked a lot about the challenges. I think that you know, as we we wrap up here, leave folks with a word of hope. If we get this right, if we can match legislation and PD and resourcing to this challenge with HQIM implementation, you know, what will we get? What will our world look like if we do get this right? Jen, I'll start with you.
3: I think that um, providing students year over year with access to high quality instructional materials will allow us to produce those students that can go into the world and feel successful and prepared and ready for whatever that means, career, college, trade school. Um, And so I think, and the reason that is, is because you will have ways in an ongoing way to make sure that students are having the most rigorous, high quality materials in front of them, whether that's in math or science or reading Um, and then having those assessments built in that are doing that gradual release and preparing them to do those tasks independently. I think for teachers, I just would agree with a lot of what Anna said. I think um, high quality instructional materials potentially take some of that stress off teachers and allow them to actually really dive into their craft. I think teachers are the most amazing humans on this earth. Um, And I think really giving teachers opportunities to really bring that joy into the classroom and not have this burden of having to plan, build assessments and build curriculum and find resources and materials. Like I'm excited about what that could mean for the role of a teacher. And then similarly to what Anna was saying, uh, teachers need flexibility and how their jobs are work and are oriented and right. So this idea of of having flex days or this idea of having flexible ways in which you get professional development where you're not all sitting in a room for six hours uh, really excites me and, uh, and and it makes me think about what that profession of a teacher is and how we really like value and respect that over time and how that brings more teachers potentially back into the workforce.
2: I love that. Um, I, I think uh, to uh Jenna's focus on the teaching profession and, and teachers, you know, I think about the promise of this work for students and what we haven't really delved into today. Um, but I think we'd be remiss without talking about our, know, our most vulnerable learners. Um, um, And if we can make sure that all classrooms have high quality instructional materials, and if we can um, invest in in all teachers knowing how to use them, then I think we can make the system work a lot better for our most vulnerable learners. And um, so I think that's what's inspiring and exciting about this moment, because there actually is a good deal of alignment between um, red states and blue states. And Blue districts within red states that all have gotten behind science of reading. You know, Matt and Jenny, you guys talked about the number of states that have introduced forty-two and passed um, thirty-nine um, have passed policy and regulation for science of reading. You know, that is happening across the aisle. And so, my hope is that we can continue to work together at the state, at the district level, engage teachers to be excited about this work and um, and meet them where they are, and then hopefully all of that to impact um, all learners, um, but particularly the students that need the most support.
1: No, I love that perspective. And the practical reality is that these problems get solved when we all work together at multiple layers, right? Legislatures have a huge role to play in terms of allocating funding and setting prioritization for school districts and giving them the resources to be successful. I think as you both have highlighted, being able to align that resource allocation with an honest listen to what your educational leaders are sharing around the needs whether it is better support and upskilling for teachers through pd whether it is you know more and better access to hqim whether it is vetting resources at the top level so folks can reduce the cognitive load all of those things drive both an equity component, right, making sure that every student has access to world-class education, but also a practical implementation perspective, which is actually freeing up the resources to make this a possibility. So I am so thankful for the two of you to, to come and share your thoughts. Anna, Jenna, thank you, and uh, this has been a, another wonderful episode of Lessons Learned. Can't wait to see you in the next one. Have a great day.
0: Thank you so much for listening to Lessons Learned. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like, subscribe, or share. And for more content created with educators in mind, consider subscribing to our monthly newsletter at betterlesson.com newsletter. Until next time.